What's up, you guys? Welcome back to Indirect Message. Today, I have a topic for you that is a little closer to home for me, and that is the various heated debates about feminism and Islam. As some of you may know, my dad is from Iran. His family fled when the Islamic Revolution happened in the 70s and basically became separated throughout the world for about 15 years. My dad came here to California as a teenager to live with a family friend. My uncle fled to France, and my grandparents hopped all over the world um, as my grandfather, who is a journalist, was a journalist, spoke out critically against the regime. Obviously, the revolution had a pretty serious impact on their life, and even though my dad is Mormon now, which is a story for a different day, their politics are very secular when it comes to the Iranian government. They're very angry about what happened to their country. And while it's not something that we talk about daily, I've gathered that it's a source of pain for all of them. I may try to do an interview with them about their story in the future because it really is pretty crazy. Anyhow, naturally, I became interested in the issues affecting women in Iran as a teenager during my sort of, you know, political feminist awakening. My grandma is a feminist herself. She rejected the hijab, she started her own business, and despite being subjected to sexist gender roles to this day in her 90s, she is not a very quiet or submissive woman. I think we have that in common. So imagine my surprise when, as a teenager, I made a video about religious sexism that received tremendous pushback. But it's interesting to me that that video, which is 12 or 13 years old now, criticized all the religions that had affected my life, Mormonism, Christianity, and Islam. But it was only the inclusion of Islam that was deemed problematic. The loud and clear message was that it is not okay, even amongst feminists, to discuss sexism in Islamic doctrine. How could this be? Fast forward to today, and the taboo seems fiercer than ever, but it still makes me scratch my head. And in light of all this, I feel it's more important than ever to support the women who are speaking up despite the enormous social and political pressure to stay quiet. And one of those women is my guest today, Yasmin Mohammed. Yasmin is an incredible woman with a very harrowing story, content warning, content warning. She writes all about it in her autobiography called Unveiled. She grew up in a fundamentalist Islamic household in Canada. She was a victim of stomach-churning child abuse, which was dismissed by Canada's family court system on cultural grounds. Later, she was forced to marry a member of Al-Qaeda and eventually fled the marriage to protect her daughter from sexist abuses. Since becoming an activist in recent years, she started the organization Free Hearts, Free Minds. They help ex-Muslims living in Muslim-majority countries where leaving Islam or being LGBTQ is punishable by death. She also started hashtag free from hijab to support women in the Middle East who are pushing back against mandatory hijab. And she's a fierce feminist critic of liberal apologetics for Islam. She's one of the most prominent feminist voices in the West on this issue. So I was very excited to get a chance to talk to her. Buckle up. I hope you enjoy our conversation. 
So I was initially being forced to marry my second cousin when I was in Egypt, and then I was able to get away from that. And then this second marriage that they were forcing me into was like my mom said, and I quote, we wanted to get a man that was strong enough to control you because they felt like I was unruly and I kept on asking too many questions and I just wouldn't get in line. And so they chose a terrorist. Did yeah. Did your mom know he was a member of Al-Qaeda? Yes, she knew. And it was um, for my mom that wouldn't that would be a point of pride. Would you say your mom is kind of the primary mover in a lot of this stuff? She married this very fundamentalist man and then kind of forced you to do the same and has seems to have been a really oppressive force in your life, which is, you know, for coming from a background that is so male dominated and so much about male control over women, it's jarring to see this come from your mom you know, a, a woman as well. Yeah. Um, I think that surprises a lot of people too. So, it, you know, I'm not sure how things are in Persian culture in Iran, but in the Arab culture, it's very common for moms, well, for women in general, to internalize misogyny to a drastic degree. And it, it manifests in moms to their daughters very commonly because there's really no other outlet. You know, there's there's nobody else that she can control. She can't control her husband. She can't control her son. She can't control anybody out in society. Um, she barely has control over herself and her own life, but she can take it out on her daughter. Western feminism, there is a lot of conversation about internalized misogyny, and it's usually applied to different uh situations <laughs> yeah. things like slut shaming or yeah. you know jealousy I'm not like the other girls all that kind of stuff yeah. but yeah I think this is a particularly jarring manifestation of that for people who haven't experienced it before um, so you've had this harrowing journey and then at some point in your life fairly recently in your life mm -hmm. you decide that you need to speak out about your experience and to get involved in the conversation about Islam in the West. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So what was your um, genesis, I guess? You, you had mentioned a few times in the stuff I read about a Bill Maher segment. Yeah, so no, you're absolutely correct. There was a Bill Maher episode where he had Sam Harris and Ben Affleck on as guests. And that episode was the catalyst for me finally speaking out, even not just speaking out publicly, but even to my friends and coworkers, Bill Maher and Sam Harris were lamenting how Western liberals are very loud in support of liberal values in the West. But when we start to say, okay, but let's talk about these liberal values that need to be defended in other areas of the world too. And so then they gave the example of how in Egypt, close to 90% of people Polled in Egypt believed that those who leave the religion of Islam should be executed. And that really touched me because my family is Egyptian and I left Islam. And so it was like they were speaking about me. It was a, it was a really strange moment for me because it's like I didn't even see myself. I didn't even find the value in fighting for myself. But when they started to talk about me, I was like, yeah. 
what about us? You know, like, why are we just accepting our fate? Like, we should be fighting back. And then, of course, in that moment, Ben Affleck (laughs) almost leapt out of his chair, calling them gross and racist and, you know, basically personifying the exact thing that they were complaining about and um, shut down the conversation. And the next day on my Facebook, everybody was going on about this, you know, how great Ben Affleck was, that he shut down these gross and racist men. And I was like, have you all gone mad? Like, what is going on? How are you? How are you? What what is your perspective that you're seeing that? Not a single person was engaging with the arguments or the message that Bill and Sam were expressing. Like in in Egypt, for example, just very recently, um, one a, a very prominent activist ended up committing suicide because she just felt like she was getting nowhere and she was getting no support. And that's the kind of thing that breaks my heart because I feel like, well, we're over here with all of this power and all of these resources, and we're not pointing them in a meaningful direction where we could actually help people. And I think that's what Bill, I'm sure that's what Bill and Sam were saying too, is they're saying we're not being consistent in our values. We only speak out against atrocities when they happen on our soil. But there are human rights atrocities uh, on, on the exact same issue is happening in other areas. Free speech is, you know, blasphemy laws, people being executed, people being beheaded, people being whipped in the streets for blasphemy. Like these are things that we need to all be talking about, um, not just almost the the microaggressions that we're focusing on here. And it's not to say that the issues here don't matter because I want to make myself clear. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if we're going to wait until the West is a utopia before we look to support um, more powerless people, then we're, it's never going to happen. And yeah. so that's a, that's an unfair bar to set because essentially what you're saying is we're never going to look to you. And that's, that's not how things change. I mean, apartheid in South Africa was dissolved when the international community got together. I feel like there are a few weird dynamics that are at play here, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But one of them that I've noticed is this real hesitance to, or real, uh, I guess, focus on letting people of a particular group be the voice for their group, right? Um, You're not supposed to speak over, quote unquote, other people. And that makes sense in some contexts, I think. But when it comes to people who are sometimes quite literally vo- vo- voiceless or they're um, unable to express what's happening because of a dictatorship or government suppression like what's happening in China or severe mm-hmm. misogyny like what's happening in the Middle East in some parts, um, you know, that talking point becomes, I think, a little bit less productive. And do you feel like that's part of why liberals are hesitant to talk about this? No, I totally agree with with what you're saying, but their mindset only works if the group that they're referring to is a monolith and there's no such thing. No group is ever a monolith. There's always going to be varied perspectives within that group. You can't say, I mean, 
women in Iran are being thrown in prison for taking off their hijabs. But even so, I can't say, I heard an Iranian woman speak and she said that she doesn't want to wear the hijab. Therefore, all Iranian women don't want to wear hijab. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a debate, like, you know, just because you hear an American woman speak out um, and she's pro-life, for you to make an assumption from that, that there are no pro-choice women in America is, you know, it's it's a very simplistic view. So it, it just, it would never happen. So it is true that uh, we should let people that are you know, that understand the, that have the experiences that are from those cultures, we should allow them to speak, but we should understand too, that one voice is just one voice. I wonder if part of this also isn't about race um, with Americans being, (laughs) (laughs) oh yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit complicated. Americans being majority white, um, Muslim countries being majority not white. Um, I think there's a hesitance there as well. And, um, you know, I wonder if that's why it's okay to criticize Christianity, for instance, without being called a bigot, but it's not okay to criticize Judaism or Islam because you're being anti-Semitic or racist. I mean, what do you make of that argument? I feel like that's a real psychological barrier. It, it, it is, but it, but it makes me sad. It's, it's only a psychological, psychological barrier because you're making it one. It's only a psychological barrier because, not you, but Americans, because they're choosing to see white people differently than they would see a, you know, a brown-skinned or black-skinned person. If they chose to just see human beings then this wouldn't be a conversation anymore. There would be no difference. So, for example, in the UK, um, if a family is caught performing FGM on their child, so basically, you know, mutilating her, they would get an educational pamphlet and they would get told, hey, that's not nice. You shouldn't do that. That's not a good idea to do that to your daughter. But if that were a blonde-haired, blue-eyed British family that decided to take a razor blade to their daughter's clitoris, those people would be in prison. Those people would be in like psychiatric wards. Um, but but because it's a woman or a man from Somalia that did it, we're going to treat them differently. That's the problem. And that's that's what I show you in my book about my personal experience with that. Um, When I went to, you know, it went through social services, you know, child protection, police, the courts. And in the end, they told me, um, sorry, you just have to accept your abuse because that's your culture. That's your family. Yeah, I was shocked by that story. Um, Basically, you were dealing with horrific abuse from your dad, tried to get help, and then were turned away on the grounds of some kind of distorted sense of cultural sensitivity. And mm. not only is it just fucked up on every level, but it, it almost, it's like this weird, ironic racism. Exactly. Yes, you got it. That's exactly it. When you say, I will speak out against purity culture, for Christian girls, but I won't speak out against it for Muslim girls. You're being a racist right now, like, or, or a bigot, like you're segregating, you're choosing that. Um, I will only speak because these are victims, right? It doesn't matter if, 
if the girl, she doesn't care if her skin is white or brown. She's a victim in this scenario and she's looking for help. And so for people to say, I choose to speak out against the misogyny that is oppressing this girl, but I refuse to speak about the misogyny that is oppressing you, that is so such a betrayal of liberalism. Like how can you, how can you even call you? And these are people that call themselves anti-racist. These are people that call themselves leftist and liberals. Like it's no, you're not, you're, you're betraying all of those values. There's definitely some strange um, anti-racist race reductionism that's happening there, kind of trying to see good and evil in skin color more than mm-hmm. values, beliefs, and behaviors. Um, but there is also, I think, a huge amount of reductionism that happens on the more conservative side of this conversation as well. I mean, mm-hmm. at, at what point does some of this conversation or criticism become actually racist. There's no doubt there's a huge amount of anti-Muslim sentiment, you know, treating all Muslims as terrorists. You know, I think all of that noise makes this much more complicated too. Right. Yes, it's true. I mean, it's so difficult to have a nuanced conversation. It's like you said, they want the the bad guy to have a black hat and the good guy to have a white hat. And they want things to be so easy and clear when nothing in the world is like that. It's always going to be gray. So yes, Muslims can be in, can in some situations be the victims and in other situations be the oppressors, you know, because again, Muslims are not a monolith, right? We're talking about close to 2 billion people here. I I just wonder if some of that, protection is a reaction to the right-wing stuff, you know, a right-wing to the xenophobia. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in theory, we should be able to criticize both. You're absolutely correct. And especially post 9-11, there was a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment and not just even anti-Muslim, it was anti-anybody. <laughs> like, um, unfortunately, Sikh people, when they wore turbans, people were like, oh my God, he looks like Osama bin Laden. And then they would get, people would lash out at them as well even though they're from like a completely different part of the world and a completely yeah. different religion, but there was, you know, yeah, people were ignorant on the differences. Um, so yes, what you're saying is absolutely true. But again, if we're going to, we have to look at values. We can't look at identities. We're never going to eradicate racism. We're never going to eradicate bigotry. So what we have to do instead is we have to make it life as difficult as possible for racists and for bigots to be able to to be bigots, to be racist. I think that we are doing that. A lot of work needs to be done to continue to do this. We're not finished. We're never going to be finished, like I said, because you know there's there's racist people out there teaching their children to be racist right now as we speak. So it has to be an ongoing, continuing conversation issue. But this, there's like this mindset that if we continue to capitulate, coddle, you know, pander, then it will finally let people see <laughs> that there's nothing to be afraid of, that, that, that all Muslims are, are friends and that they're all like, we're never going to reach that point. It's a, it's a, it's an irrational thing that we're expecting people to reach that point. So what we have to say instead is Muslims are just human beings, just like the rest of us. 
Some of them are good people. Some of them are bad people. Some of them are a mix of both. It makes my job difficult too because people will say to me, oh, I saw a woman in niqab. That means like the, fr- the full face covering like I used to wear. Um, and they'll say, I felt so bad for her because I know that she must be oppressed and that she didn't want to wear that. And I said, well, you're probably correct. But, you know, like my mom wore it and she wanted to wear it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there's there's always going to be – you can never, ever say 100% about anything, make an assumption about somebody based on their clothing, their skin color, or their religion, or where they're from in the world. Um, those shortcuts are just not – they're just not possible. Do you think it would be helpful to separate out criticism of the doctrine from criticism of the other people? That's great. Yes, that's exactly correct. And that's what I try to do so much all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, The doctrine of Islam has a lot of, you know, horrific things in it, a lot of edicts that I completely disagree with. There's a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of misogyny, there's a lot of violence. Muslims, on the other hand, are again, like I said, close to 2 billion people, they're on a spectrum. A lot of them can completely disagree with those edicts as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, others will completely be supportive of it. So again, any statement that I make about Muslims or any statement that I make about any group of people is going to be incorrect because there's always going to be nuances to that. Um, but when I talk about Islam as the religion itself, it's a lot easier to have that conversation because now I'm talking about words on a page. Now I'm talking mm-hmm. about, okay, here's the ayah, you know, chapter four, verse 34. It says, if you fear your wife, um, might be arrogant or disobedient, beat her. It's full on, like there it is, <laughs> black and yeah. white on the page. So it's easy to engage with that. Now, that doesn't mean that all Muslim men are going to beat their wives. Of course not. But those who choose to beat their wives have it sanctioned in their religion. So they can go back to it and be like, see, look, my God said I can. Yeah. There are some people who make the argument, a similar argument, I guess, that Islam is about peace and people who choose to do violent things are not following the doctrine. Uh, I imagine you disagree with that. Yes, I I disagree with that. And that's another one of those Orwellian statements, you know, war is peace, freedom is slavery. You hear a lot about that. Hijab is a choice. Um, You hear these statements all the time. You know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the leader of ISIS, had a PhD in Islamic studies. The the laws of the countries in the Middle East and North Africa and South Asia that have Sharia Islamic law that say things like, um, like I mentioned, homosexuals should be killed by being thrown off the highest building. Um, You know, all of these restrictions on women. I mean, I could go on and on about all these horrific laws. Those laws come from the religion and come from Islamic scholars. So scholars of Sharia, men that have studied the religion and who are scholars in creating laws based on this religion, based on the Quran and Hadith. They have determined that 
in these countries, if you denounce Islam, you should be executed. So why, why, how, how have they all come up with that? Well, they've all come up with that because that's what's in the doctrine of the religion. So that doesn't sound peaceful to me. Um, and in your book, you noted that 70% of children in Muslim-majority countries are violently disciplined if they do not strictly adhere to the rules of the doctrine. You describe your own uh, experience with this as well. I wonder if part of the problem is in that people don't realize what's actually happening. I oh, mean, yeah. We rarely hear from the people in these situations, um, language barriers being part of it. But fear being another part, like you mentioned before, you're not going to hear from them because they're in dictatorships that would execute them for speaking up. Yeah, I just, I feel like it's it's hard to understand what's really happening and people would rather tell themselves that violence might happen, but it's relatively rare. But yeah. by the research we have, it's not rare, actually. It's not rare at all. And it's kind of like... When I was growing up, Walk Like an Egyptian was a big song. <laughs> and I felt really proud because I'm Egyptian. And I was like, yeah, you know, and people are like, oh, is this how you guys walk in Egypt? And I was like, yep, that's totally how we walk. Oh, do you guys <laughs> live in pyramids? Yep, we live in pyramids. It was silly. It didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't important. Aladdin came out. It was full of all of these, you know, ridiculous confusions between India and Persia. Like, but whatever. It doesn't, none of it mattered. It was all fiction. It was all fun and games. After 9-11, it's, it, it's no longer fun and games. Like now people, this is on your soil. This Now you have to start paying attention to what's going on. You can't just turn a blind, like we turn a blind eye to what's happening in North Korea, for example. Atrocities are happening there. Absolute atrocities. Some people have escaped and they're able to tell us about it, but we generally ignore it. You know, we generally ignore all the places in the world where people don't have clean water, where the water they drink is, you know, dirtier than the water that's in our toilets. We generally ignore so many horrific things that are happening in the world all the time. But what's different now is that these horrific things are not happening over there. They're happening over here. And not, maybe not so much in America since 9-11, but definitely you can see it all over Europe. Like you can see what France is going through right now. For example, Germany just had um, three people stabbed to death. You saw the in Europe with the New Year's party where thousands of girls were being harassed in one night. That's the kind of thing that can happen if you just clash a mindset that is completely different from your own. I see what you're saying. I, I feel like that could lend itself to people, you know, not wanting to look out for refugees because because aren't a no. lot of the people refugees that are coming yes. into these European countries, they're fleeing violence and then yes. the communities have, you know, problems of their own that are complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the idea is that you think that these types of values won't come and affect your culture, they could if these people, you know, come into your country. I'm uncomfortable with that argument. No, I'll tell you why, Lacey. The difference is Germany flung open their doors. And I don't know if you're watching the news in those days, but it was like a tsunami of bodies coming in. There was there, there were people coming in from Morocco and Afghanistan and Egypt. These were not Syrian refugees. These were people that felt like, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to go to Europe. And more often than not, who can just get up and go? a young, unmarried male, right? So those were the most of the people that came in were 
young men who, you know, maybe they didn't have employment opportunities at home or whatever the case may be. So back to my earlier comment about how we have to treat people as individuals, we can't go by groups. So for example, when Trump said, we're not going to bring people from these countries, X, Y, Z. Well, that was wrong because there are people from those countries who could end up being American citizens and serving this country better than people that are born and raised here, you know? So, but but you don't know that. And people who are fleeing violence as and well. And people who are being violent. Absolutely. People who need our support, people who have nowhere else to go, 100%. But we're never going to know that if we say nobody from Sudan is allowed in or nobody from Iraq is allowed in. So we're ma- we're taking these shortcuts where we're just saying, hey, this country... Um, you know, has had violence in the past. So we're just going to stop accepting people from there. Mm. We're, that's where we're, we're failing to recognize that individuals are individuals. It's too late for this. But if I could go back in time, if you could be at the German borders and talk to people and say, hey, how do you feel about the equality of men and women? How do you feel about a man marrying another man? You know, how do you feel about free speech? How do you feel about uh, secularism? And, and how do you feel about Jewish people? Have those conversations and then you will know who you are inviting into your home. Yazidis, for example, so they're a Christian minority group who were being not only killed by ISIS, but being taken as sex slaves by ISIS. Like they're the number one group that should have been protected by any country to take them in and to save them from what was going on. Um, but we were, we were trying to take shortcuts, you know, like we just, we just want to make assumptions about people based on their religion or based on where they're from. And that's so unfair because like in my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, I support people who are from Muslim-majority countries, people who are living in Sudan, living in Somalia, living in Saudi Arabia, living in Egypt, and they just want to be free, whether it's to free their mind and be able to just believe in whatever they want to believe. They don't want to be forced to pray to Allah five times a day. When we put a stamp on the country and we say all Somalis are like this or all Sudanese are like this, you are you are completely like they are the people that are being the most hurt when you make these grand judgments these mm-hmm. you know painting with a, a with a broad brush so long story short we absolutely should be bringing in refugees 100% um we should be supporting people that are fleeing from you know war torn countries and we also should be supporting people who are fleeing from countries that want to kill them for what they believe or want to kill them for who they love. But we need to be paying attention that the people that we invite in, that we're not just looking at things like what is your education or what is your how much income do you have, but we're looking at their actual values. What do you believe? These, this is our constitution. How do you feel about this? Couldn't people just lie? They, they could lie, but um, they wouldn't know how to lie. <laughs> so I lived um, like about 10 years in Muslim majority countries. So I'm, I'm going to just give you my personal experience. You're living in a country where 
education, media, government, everything is singing the same tune, is, is Islamic. If you are savvy enough to know what to say and what to do, then you probably are questioning your own beliefs. The internet is making a big, big, huge difference because when you are living in a country where over 90% of the people all believe one thing, which is really hard to explain to an American because you're such a open society in a way that so many other countries in the world could, like there's no way to explain that in Egypt, you can't even say anything negative about the president to your neighbor because they might call the secret police on you and then you'll disappear. Like that's, that's the kind of society these people are living in. And so when you're in such a closed society like that, the internet is doing wonders for opening people's minds. And they are so starving for different ideas and different perspectives that it is, you know, it's opening minds left, right, and center. And this is why my, my big hope is that I see secularism in the Middle East, like a separation of mosque and state. Because I really believe that if people were given the freedom to choose, do you want to follow Sharia or do you want freedom? I truly believe that people would choose their freedom. Yeah. And that's why I have so much sympathy for people who are trying to get out of it. Mm -hmm. I like your values idea, the values tests. I but like you were saying, America is sort of a melting pot of ideas. It seems mm -hmm. to be antithetical to what America is about, which is freedom of religion and, you know, freedom of belief. Basically, they're fleeing freedom of belief. So isn't there a little bit of a conflict with, the, with that policy to require people to express a particular set of values? It's complicated because obviously we don't want people who value violence <laughs> to come into yeah countries and and cause violence and horrific atro atrocities but well yeah and you're going to have Americans that have those thoughts too right you're never going to be able to again eradicate that from the human race but what you can do is mitigate it as much as possible by not inviting in <laughs> more people with um idea like obviously there are a lot of misogynists in America today but why invite more misogynists in if they're fleeing violence, I feel genuinely conflicted about this. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, it's really difficult. Um, we don't have to solve all the problems right now. But it's just a really interesting point you're raising that I hadn't really thought of before. I'll have to chew on that. Um, I know we're getting short on time. I wanted to make sure we talk about the hijab because you've been really outspoken about that. Um, mm -hmm. As a feminist who has criticized the hijab, I've gotten in a lot of trouble online, especially really? when I was younger before I learned the rules that you, you can't oh. criticize the hijab. And I think we do need to have a conversation about it as a symbol of rape culture. Um, mm -hmm. You're pretty anti or critical of the hijab, right? Yes, I am. I'm very, I'm very anti-hijab and I'm very critical of the hijab. But even so, I'll still say if a woman truly chooses to wear the hijab. Like I never have an issue with individual women. My issue is with the ideas behind this tool of misogyny. 
And some women, like I said, have internalized misogyny. Some women, you know, choose their own subjugation. You've got like, you know, trad wives are a big, huge thing on Twitter lately, which just blows my mind. Yeah. Some women choose it. Exactly. Some women choose it. And you know what? Whatever. All the power to them, you know, do whatever floats your boat. But I'm still going to be against it. I'm still going to speak up against it. I'm still going to point out that this is a tool of misogyny. I'm still going to point out that it's a tool of rape culture. I'm going to talk about the fact that it is forced onto little girls. You know, in Iran, you can't go to school unless you wear a hijab. So little girls at the age of, you know, six or seven, when they start going to school, they have to wear it. Otherwise, they won't be allowed to go to school. So it is being forced on young girls. And when it's being forced on them, the messages that they are being told, number one, slut shaming. So you'll see these big, huge billboards of the most common one is a lollipop that's all wrapped up and it's a nice, clean lollipop. And then there's another lollipop that's unwrapped and it's covered in flies and bugs and dirt. And they'll say to a little girl, so again, you have to keep in mind, you're you're coercing a six or seven-year-old girl at this point. So that's why they're using lollipops. And they say, oh, would you, look, which lollipop would you prefer? And of course, the girl says, I want the covered one. That's right, because covered girls are clean and pure and good. But look at these filthy uncovered girls. This is what they're like. They're covered in dirt. You don't want to be like them. You want to cover yourself up and be good. So these ideas of slut shaming are so you know, they start from such a young age to the point that in my book, I tell the story of how I was teaching in Qatar, which is a country next to Saudi Arabia. And one of my students was arguing with another student and they came to me to, um, to deal with the issue. And the student in hijab said to me, as I'm standing there, I'm not wearing hijab. And she says to me, teacher, you can't believe her. She doesn't wear hijab. They lie. The girls that don't wear hijab, they're liars. Mm-hmm. They're not good like the ones that wear hijab. Oh, no. And so it was, it was such a part of her understanding of separating girls to the point that she's saying that to a woman not wearing hijab, and she doesn't even realize how insulting that is like how i'm like oh okay i'm full on taking the other girl's side now yeah yeah <laughs> you know and they're they're too but, young to understand well this was a college but yes oh, it, it had well. yeah it, it, <laughs> at that point the indoctrin but what i mean is the indoctrination is so deep they don't even realize that like they've never questioned it the indoctrination went into their head at such a young age to separate clean girls from dirty girls and you know again they have these um the image of of a girl in hijab going up the stairs to heaven and a girl not in hijab going down the stairs to hell. That's another common one too, where um, you're not only slut shaming them as far as you're good and clean and pure, but it's like you are, you are going to go to heaven and the uncovered girls are going to go to hell. Um, And then of course there's all the messages of victim blaming, which is, you know, if you weren't wearing one and someone took advantage of you, it's your fault. Yes. It's it's yeah. the same it's the same stuff you see in, in evangelical Christianity. Yes. And the onus is on you, right? This yeah. is, the onus is on the, the girl to prevent somebody from harassing her or raping her. Like that's you know, what could be more victim blaming than that? Yeah. 
Um, and I think that cuts to the heart of another point that you had made in the book about the hijab and a lot of things, um, a lot of cultural symbols being expressions of male control um, over women because it's dishonorable to the man, right? If if his girls or his wife doesn't wear a hijab, it's a reflection of him as well, not just her. Yep, absolutely. It's a reflection on the whole family. They have a saying in Arabic that says the honor of the family is between the girl's legs. Like that's... Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whoa. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's in a, such a... This is why you'll find a lot of women in these societies fighting back so hard because they're just so sick and tired of it. They're so sick and tired of all the pressure. Like, just honor yourself. Deal with your own honor. Leave me alone. I'm going to wear what I want to wear. I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to live where I want to live. I'm going to work where I want to work. Just, you know, fuck off. (laughs) Like, it's so tiring. It's so, so tiring to be living in, in, in such a society. And those voices of the women fighting back are so few and so far between and so unsupported. I mean, they're getting Mm -hmm. louder and louder now with the internet, thankfully, because they're able to find each other and support each other. So that's wonderful to see. Um, but they need our help too. Something that I've found interesting, I'm not sure if it was in your book or if you had talked about it elsewhere, but the visibility on this issue would you say that the highest visibility um, movement around this is World Hijab Day, where everyone's encouraged to put yeah. on a hijab? <laughs> That's such oh. a depressing day. It's so yeah. it's so much. It's funny how much support it gets. I mean, it's not funny. It's terrifying how yeah. much um, more support it gets than things like hashtag free from hijab yeah. or White Wednesday yes. in Iran. Like nobody, yeah. nobody even talks about what's happening over there. But I feel sometimes a a little bit um, powerless. You know, what can I really do? Okay, so women in Iran are being, you know, they're taking their hijabs, they're tying it on a stick, they're waving it, you know, a white hijab, basically, you know, asking for mercy, you know, leave us alone. We don't want to wear this on our heads. Just, you know, um, and those women are being thrown in prison. Yeah. So that's something that's happening, okay, very far away. And there's nothing we can do, maybe. A lot of people feel like there's nothing I can do as an individual to support these women. Fair enough. But you know what you can do? You cannot, you can choose to not put hijab on the cover of magazines. You can choose to not put hijab on Barbie's head. You can choose to not put a Nike swoosh on hijabs. You can choose to not celebrate this tool of misogyny, this tool of rape culture that is getting women imprisoned, that is getting women attacked with acid, that is getting women killed. Like you, you don't have to even necessarily fight against it, but could you please, for the love of everything holy, not support it maybe? (laughs) Like that's all I'm asking. People so often say, well, you know, we have to leave it to those women to fight their own battles. They are fighting their own battles. They are. There are women all over the world and not just in the Muslim world, but in the Western world as well, who are fighting these battles. And, you know, the extreme cases are the women that are imprisoned or the ones that are killed. But more often than not, these women are being disowned by their families. They're losing their friends. You know, there's all sorts of, you know, um, 
obstacles that women who choose to just have autonomy over their own bodies, there are all sorts of sorts of obstacles that these women have to overcome. And do you know what really hurts when you have to overcome those obstacles? Seeing it on the cover of a magazine. Oh my God. Such a betrayal, such a betrayal of feminism, such a such an anti-woman thing to do. The woman's march, Lacey. The woman's march. What what happened at the woman's march? They had a huge poster of a woman in hijab. Could it have been they're supporting women in in Muslim countries? Like was it okay. an explicit support of the hijab? I'm trying to have a charitable interpretation here. Well, this is the thing. You can support women without supporting an ideology. Like if I want to support women, I'm not going to start supporting Mormon underwear. <laughs> right? Yeah. But I mean, some women wear that. So there I feel like there's a little bit of tension there. Like No, you're right, but now you've made the choice to ch- to support an ideology. Now you're not supporting women anymore. So again, let me go with the pro-choice, pro-life issue because that's something that Americans are, you know, heated about. If I'm going to come out and full-on support um, pro-life women, then what am I? What am I doing? I'm 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 speaking up against pro-choice women, aren't I? Even if I haven't said it, but if you're going to put a a a hijab, like I said, on the cover of magazines, on Barbie's head, put a Nike swoosh on it, have a big, huge, um, you know, posters of it for the Women's March. What you're saying is, I support this side of the argument. I support the side of the argument that is anti-woman. I support the side of the argument that is victim blaming. I support the side of the argument that is slut shaming. I support the side of the argument that believes in rape culture. That's what you're saying. I feel like in theory, perfectly clear, in practice, a little bit trickier because mm-hmm. obviously you want to create space for those women who, you know, do find it empowering, who do choose to wear it and live their lives. And, you know, you don't want them to feel like you're criticizing them or saying you're complicit in the patriarchy or whatever, even if, you know, maybe on some level they are. I just don't mm-hmm. feel like it's a when I'm talking to really hardcore Mormons, I can't just come out swinging. You have to have some sympathy for where they're coming from. And that I'm, might be, you know, their reverence toward these symbols as well. But again, the point that I'm making is that you don't have to do either of those. Like nobody's asking you to go up to women in hijab and start to talk to them about the ideology behind it or the mindset behind it. All I'm saying is you as a feminist, don't support a tool of misogyny. That's all. Like you can make that choice in your own life. Let me give you an example. For instance, Mm -hmm. you know, I've worked with student groups a lot, which I'm sure you have as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes some of the students in those groups wear the hijab. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm sure you can appreciate the discomfort of Mm -hmm. making one of your issues about fighting against these symbols of oppression or criticizing what they're wearing as a symbol of rape culture. Do you see what I'm saying? Like in I, a I in a real life context. Yes. It's but a I guess tricky. <laughs> it's tricky. Yes. But I'm not asking you to criticize the hijab. I'm just asking you to not celebrate the hijab. And by you again, I mean the large American public, like American corporations. 
I'm not saying you guys necessarily need to support women in Iran or support women in Saudi Arabia or support women in Algeria that are fighting against the hijab. I'm just saying, please don't support the opposite side of the argument of the of the oppressors that these women are fighting against. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Does that make I, sense? That, it does make sense. It does make sense. It's because I care about Muslim women because I was a Muslim woman because I lived that life and I empathize with them and I understand how difficult it is to stand on your own two feet and I understand how many arrows you are attacked with as soon as you start to lift your head and so I understand how important it is to try and support these women as much as possible so that's why I started the hashtag free from hijab because I wanted them I know that they're not getting any support or love from their own communities or families because I didn't. My mom threatened to kill me when she saw me without a hijab on in public. Like, I know what that life is like. Yes, you're complete strangers, anonymous on the internet and just people clicking like and retweet, but you're getting validation, you're getting love, you're getting support, and it's making you feel like, I can do this, I can do this. All right, that was Yasmin Mohammed. Check out her book, Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam, if you want to hear more about our story. Thanks for joining me, my dears. I'll see you next time.